Hello, and welcome to episode number four of Islington Mill and a podcast series about the cultural life and times of one of the UK's most beloved artist-led creative centres, Salford's Islington Mill. Well, it's Pride in Manchester this month, even though Salford technically has its own Pride in, I think it's July? In Manchester, we have Manchester Pride, which is one of the biggest Pride celebrations in the country. And for this month's edition of Islington, uh, Islington Mill and, excuse me, we've decided to go with um, an interview that I recorded a few months ago that was originally going to be scheduled for the Islington Mill is Queer podcast, but which since I decided probably would go better in the Islington Mill and podcast series because I hopefully will be doing more interviews with my interviewee on a vast number of subjects, including their almost lifelong involvement with queer activism, both here and abroad, and also a little organisation known as the Radical Fairies, who, if you've been around Islington Mill at any point in the last 12 months, you might have bumped into some other members of the Radical Fairies. They've had a bit of involvement here in the Mill in the last 12 months, but the person that I'm speaking to this month, we're just going to focus on their own story, their history, of growing up as a young queer person in both South Africa and here in the UK and their involvement with the birth, I would say, of what we now know as modern queer activism. This month's interviewee is Mix and this is a great interview and I'm particularly proud to have this one in the bag as it's documenting the voice and story of a very important queer elder and I personally believe that documenting the voices and stories of our queer elders is something that we should be doing much more within our own communities and showing that there is history and lineage to our cultures. We didn't just spring up out of nowhere overnight. That big fancy parade you'll see coming down the street in the next couple of days, it's only the modern expression of something that is actually infinite and timeless. And I'll stop ranting like a hippie now and I'll go back to myself and this month's very special guest on Islington Mill and Mix. Mix, welcome to Islington Mill podcast. Um, Can you tell us who you are and what brings you to Islington Mill? Yes, uh, my my name is Mix, uh, full name Mix Kanamea for people who want to look me up. I have a a long history with... uh, queer activism and community building and other such projects. And I've come to Islington Mill because I I met Bill, who um, coordinates a lot of the things here, uh, nearly a year ago now. And um, we thought it'd be a good idea if I I could be involved in helping to um, guide the queer arts project that uh, is envisaged for here as, as an ongoing project and how that might be stewarded and curated for the future. Uh, I have a long history in project management with uh, charities and other community groups, uh, cooperatives and non-hierarchical organisations. So that was an issue that Bill wanted to work with me on and that's what I'm doing here now. Okay, how did you meet Bill? Um, It's through the Radical Fairies. but we, as well as the Radical Fairs, we organise a, a festival called the uh, Queer Spirit Festival. And we had uh, a festival in 2019. Uh, we have these festivals not every year, but every two or three years. And so the last one was in 2019. And that's where I met Bill uh, properly to, to have a conversation um, at the festival. I, I was uh, one of the core organisers of that. And... Um, 
well, Bell told me about the mill. At first, I didn't really, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't really get what he was talking about. Um, but we um, we had an agreement then that um, we would try and do some queer spirit events at the mill in 2020. And of course, 2020 being COVID years yeah. and various other things, we didn't do anything in the mill in 2020. But I kept in touch with Bill and then I, I met uh, during 2020 to, to talk a little bit more um, at one of the fairy gatherings and then in 2021 we talked even more <laughs> and, and it became clear where what kind of help I, or what way I could work with the mill mm-hmm. during those conversations last year. Could you tell us what Radical Fairies is? Yes, we're, we're a, an, an international organisation, first of all. There's no central control. It's extremely decentralised. We don't even call ourselves a movement because it's so decentralised that in different countries it's, it's evolved in different ways. But it grew out of the Gay Liberation Front in the 70s and the 1970s, and it grew out of an impetus within the Gay Liberation Front that so many of the... Um, gay liberation activities were being focused on um, the urban setting. So there was an urge to to get back to nature and do things in a more natural setting in the countryside, but also on uh, what might be called, for want of a better term, gay spirituality, where um, we're not focusing so much on um, the kind of hardcore, hard-edged urban activism style uh, that focuses on... um, justice and equality obviously we're interested in those things but we're more interested in building a community of trust that is heart-centered and much more supportive of actual queer life together Mm. Um, so we've not really advertised ourselves very much there is a a wikipedia page on radical fairies which gives you the the founding history and um, it doesn't really say about what happened since then in the 80s 90s and uh, this century but since then we've diversified from north america to be all over the world there are uh, what we call sanctuaries in uh, europe in uh, in australia quite a lot in north america and in other parts of the world there are things that are not quite sanctuaries but kind of protected spaces like fairy houses where people share together so it's uh, it's as I say, it's a very diverse organisation. It's hard to label it as one thing, and it's continually changing. Okay. Yeah. That's a, it, this is an interesting point for me, actually, because I've been thinking about this a lot of the last few days. Mm. You say that it's about um, spirituality. Mm-hmm. We live in a very rational, materialist world at the moment, mm-hmm. and one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is how do we define spirituality? What does that actually mean mm. in more i know it's not necessarily fully practical in and of itself mm-hmm. but in practical terms how do you describe to someone who is for instance maybe very rational materialist rationalist minded mm-hmm. who is very quick to dismiss the mm-hmm. word spirituality yeah how do you define what spirituality is to yourself but also to communicate that to somebody who might not Mm -hmm. have any knowledge or experience of what that could mean like what is spirituality yes Uh, i i accept that is a difficult question for very very many people and it is hard question to answer because it's it's not something you can completely tie down um i think 
just in the very basic level in terms of a connection to nature because we're, we're talking about very nature-based spirituality mm. we're not talking about a god in the sky uh, in traditional christian or even uh, muslim or jewish terms yeah. we're not talking about that kind of god or that kind of spirituality mm. we're talking about a, a deeper connection to the ways of the earth the ways of nature living in harmony with the elements with the natural world mm. it's that kind of very practical spirituality that enables one to live in harmony mm. with uh, the ways of nature and the ways of the earth um, and so it comes from i guess what you might call uh, generally broad-based pagan tradition but many okay. other but many other spiritualities have that connection with nature mm. that isn't necessarily unique to paganism but the, the, I, I guess the radical fairies are closest in North America, they, they took a lot of learning from the Native American tradition. Here in Europe, we took a lot from the ancient uh, Celtic and ancient European ways of doing things before Christianity came along and imposed other sorts of views on, on, on that. Um, so it's that kind of way of living um, that is actually quite practically based mm. to celebrate the seasons very often, the changes mm. of the seasons, to celebrate how we grow things on the earth, how we look after animals on the earth, how we care for the, the trees and nature and the water and all yeah. the, the oceans, that sort of thing. It's, yeah. it's that aspect of spirituality that we focus on okay. rather than, you know, the gods in the sky and yeah. stuff. <laughs> because I think one of the reasons that I'm saying that people are so materialist-minded at the mm. moment is a kind of a natural reaction to the dominance of organized religion mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. i think a lot of western societies in europe have had to kind of like shrug that off mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think that in its way turns people makes the word spirituality and the idea of spirit something kind of negative because it's mm -hmm. perhaps been abused in the past by yes. structures and stuff do you find that when you talk to people who don't maybe engage with spirituality on a day-to-day -day basis how do you find do people open up about it or how do you find no most most people, people are a bit wary about it because yeah. of organized religion because of brainwashing because of cults and leadership uh, aspects of spirituality that, yeah. that uh, manipulate people this is very 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 different but we have to kind of get over that hurdle mm. before people understand there is another way to approach this kind of thing and uh, that, that is a challenge because most people haven't had any direct experience of that. Mm. And what I explain to them is that if, you're, if, you, if you are a student of theology, there are different aspects of relating to uh, what one might perceive as God. The traditional one, which most people know about, is God is out there somewhere. Mm. What we're focusing on is, is, is the, the divine is within, mm -hmm. is actually um, that we are part of the divine nature ourselves. Yeah. And it's up to us to kind of manifest that divine nature in the way that we live mm -hmm. uh, by um, being kind, compassionate, harmonious, and seeking to understand and support each other mm -hmm. and care for each other. So it is very practically based, I feel, in that way and when you talk in those terms to people people say but well that's not what i understand about spirituality yeah but but it is for, for us it really is and and particularly relating it to queer spirit and radical fairies yeah. this is what we do um radical fairies in particular have a very 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 playful aspect of spirituality they treat spirituality as, as a bit of a game mm. and it's really not serious there's no dogma there's no kind of you have to believe in this or you have to believe in that or you have to practice this ritual or that ritual. Mm. Um, there are things that we do, but they're more celebratory and fun mm -hmm. rather than imposed from uh, dogma. But presumably there are still 
ceremonies, rituals, yeah. uh, events, yeah. things? The ceremonies and rituals are there to actually harmonise the group. They're not really to... Uh, I mean, there are uh, also to honour the elements that we give gratitude to. Um, so we, we give gratitude to, to how we get our food, how we get our, our life support systems. Okay, yeah. So we give gratitude to those elements of, of nature that, that, that bring us uh, stuff to support ourselves. Um, and we bring in sort of the elements of like fire, earth, air and water because those are things that nourish and support us. So we call on those elements to help us and support us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Basically in most of the ceremonies that's the kind of thing that we might do. But again it's not fixed. We might uh, we might play around with that quite a lot. Uh, mm. um, I think the more traditional pagans will, will kind of look with disfavour on some of our chaotic and... Yeah. Uh, uh, almost heretical ways yeah. of doing things because we're we're really not hidebound in any way. Yeah, it sounds very antithetical to organized mm. religion. Yes, like what you're yeah. saying about like traditional mm. pagans, mm. which is interesting because paganism is seen as being the antithesis of Christianity, for want of a better yeah. example. But then, in and of itself, within the last hundred years, it's become very formalized. Yes. And very. Yeah. Yes. And it sounds like yes. what you're describing is kind of a reaction against that. Yes. And in particular, because some of the traditional pagan practices have been very binary and very gender based, you okay. know, like the combining of the male and the female mm. in, in, in various traditional, very dogmatic ways and and obviously with a queer approach to that we upset the apple cart completely yeah uh, by by talking about uh, non-binary forces and uh, forces where where we embody male and female in different ways than the yeah. traditional um, and and indeed nothing to do with male and female yeah uh, you know and how we we actually embrace our uh, our kind of being as being partly even non-human that we're connected partly to animal spirit we're connected yeah. to plant spirit we're connected to earth spirit mm-hmm. uh, and so we, we we sort of celebrate that, that going beyond our, our physical life so that aspect of spirituality is perhaps harder for people to grasp because it's not something that people live with normally yes um, uh, but we, we play around with that as I say it's not taken too seriously it's, mm. it's it's quite a game and it's part of the dressing up and the drag mm-hmm. that we we embody this kind of thing yeah uh, and so it, it relates very nicely with with some aspects of, of gay and queer culture yeah that is interesting because mm. um i had a phase where i got quite interested in satanism because mm-hmm. full disclosure i was born <laughs> and raised roman catholic in uh-huh. ireland and yeah. quite a uh, not strict, but very observant yeah. Catholic household. So I've always had a big interest in growing up gay as well, and like what else is there out there? Mm-hmm. And um, but it did just strike me as being very binary, yeah, and very heteronormative. Yeah. In that it was always about the coupling of a masculine and a feminine mm-hmm. to procreate mm-hmm. ultimately. Yeah. And it was like this is interesting, but it's not super relevant to me. Yes. So it is interesting to hear about like. Mm. spiritualism that's done from a very non-binary perspective Mm -hmm. because not everyone especially on the margins and the people who are like actively rejecting organized religions a lot of the reasons for that i think are the binary Mm -hmm. choices that Mm -hmm. organized religions give you and it's not it's not for everyone Mm. um how did you get involved with radical fairies in the first place um quite early on because I, i was um living in east london in the 1970s in a kind of semi-communal setup and very much involved with what was going on with the Gay Liberation Front and the campaign for homosexual equality. And uh, my partner Peter and I um, 
we're happy to give out our street address uh, in East London as a, a mailing address for um, distribution worldwide um, for people to contact us. And that was actually a very rare thing to do because mm. most people kept their private addresses very, very private. Yeah. Uh, and our phone numbers similarly was very often shared in the 19... And this is kind of mid, mid to late 1970s. Mm. Uh, but it was still quite a radical thing to do then. So we we got mail from all over the world to our, our address telling us about all sorts of things, uh, most of which was irrelevant to East London. So yeah. I didn't I didn't really engage with it. But I, I saw this invitation from the radical fairies in uh, in the United States to gather and convene in nature, and uh, I think the call went something like into dance in the moonlight and celebrate uh, our, our, our spiritual nature and things like this. And I thought it was interesting, but mm. I thought I'm not going to go over to the states. Yeah. I've got I've got too many other things to do yeah. here here in East London, and I was incredibly busy. I was working, and um, and then uh, that was in. I mean, I'd, I'd previously heard about other stuff that was going on, but the first gathering was actually in 1979, in the summer of 79. In the UK? In, no, in, in the United States. Ah, only, okay. In, only in the United States. That's why I'm saying I'm, I wasn't going over ah. there. But I got the invitation to go over to the United so States. So you yeah. got the invitation at the very, yeah. when it was formalising? Absolutely, at the very beginning. Yeah. But I, I, I can't say I took any notice of it. I, it was just an interesting thing mm. that I, I noticed and then forgot about. But the following year, in 1980, another one, of our um, uh, mutual lovers, Gary, who was from Australia, went to the second gathering in 1980, and uh, he he'd been kind of in East London before, but he went on his travels. And he, he when he when he uh, experienced that, he contacted me and he told me, "This is so much your thing. You really should get involved with these people mm -hmm. because this is so you." Mm. Uh, and in actual fact, I was getting uh, a little bit bogged down by my job, which was working for social services in Tower Hamlets, and it wasn't going well. Mm. Um, and so I gave up that job, and my partner and I both went to the United States. He went for his own reasons, I went for other reasons. But we travelled uh, around together a little bit, but also separately, mostly on the east uh, coast of America. And I met the Radical Fairies who'd just come back from that second gathering in, right. in 1980. And I knew these were my people. Yeah. And this is very often uh, a response that we get within Radical Fairies. When people come to a Radical Fairy gathering, you kind of know that the, the the newcomers you can tell the ones that are in quotes our kind of people or yeah. or, or they resonate with us mm -hmm. and there's others that take longer you know there's others that are a bit more wary but in general the ones that kind of are inherently radical fairy uh, you can tell you know just like a kind of fairy gaydar <laughs> it's yeah a, <laughs> it's sort of like okay you're going to fit it all right you mm -hmm. know um, and, and as I say, it's very, very decentralised. There's no dogma, so people do believe lots of different things. I'm telling you my aspect of radical yeah, fairies, sure. but you could talk to another person who will give you a very different, um, well, not very different, but some different mm -hmm. outlook on that. Um, would you would you say that you were at that point interested in spirit and spiritual? affairs yes, yes and this gave you a doorway yes, to explore yes, that very much okay yes very much i was spending um uh the whole of the 70s looking i mean as a, as a in the 70s i was working with um mental hospitals in as a, as a, a psychiatric nurse mm -hmm. uh with inpatients and then i moved out to be a community psychiatric nurse in the community and what struck me uh because i've been working in that field for about seven years and what struck me 
was the inadequacy of our society in dealing with people's emotional and mental crises. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you get people who are very psychotic, who have um, a, a deep-rooted illness, but very many people are experiencing what the psychiatrist called an ontological crisis, which means they have this deep sense of a fragmentation of their being. And, uh, and not knowing how to be, in a sense. Yeah. And uh, essentially, that's a spiritual crisis. I think you know, it's not something you can cure with pills. Yes. Uh, and this, this quite, this <laughs> nicely um, dovetails back to what I was saying earlier about mm. in current society, because it is so materialist. An idea like spirit and spirituality seems so out there and not mm. tangible to people's day-to-day -day lives mm. but you've just given a very very good clear example of an mm. issue that affects people that you think is a spiritual issue mm -hmm. but i feel a lot of people which is like a disconnection mm -hmm. like it's like this isn't the life i'm supposed to be living or is mm -hmm. this the person i'm supposed to be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we don't view that even though it's addressed as an issue in our society it's not addressed in terms of spirit Yes, and I think that is something that is very interesting, and this is kind of a good example of what I'm trying to be getting my head around the last few days is a more practical aspect of what spirituality can mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you were in America. Mm -hmm. How long did you stay in America for? Uh, it was just over four months, I think. So okay. it was there quite a, a while, yeah. uh, mostly on the eastern side of America. So I was travelling up. I think the northernmost point we reached was Vermont, and the mm -hmm. southern southernmost point I reached was North Carolina. But we, uh, I was travelling around different places there. Actually, we should probably dial back even mm -hmm. further mm -hmm. um, and go back into your earlier history. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're not you weren't born in the UK. No, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, Wein okay. Weinberg to be precise. If people know the area, it's it's one one of the southern suburbs of Cape Town. Um, part of Weinberg uh, is located on the slopes of Mount Table Mountain, and it's quite nice, uh, beautiful area. But as you go uh, further away from Table Mountain, the land gets flat, and um, sandy and not very productive it goes out to what what they call the cape flats and that area traditionally is a very poor area mm -hmm. and uh, it's kind of we were living on the edge of that um still in quite a nice place but uh, approaching the, the the more scruffier end of of mm -hmm. cape town um and uh, we were living in an area that uh, in the early 50s just when I was still very young got de designated as being planned to be a white area and of course our family were all mixed race mm. and so we were living with the prospect of the knowledge that at some point we were going to get moved out mm. and indeed some of the clearances of uh, District 6 which was more in the centre of Cape Town became quite notorious that they cleared that whole area out, which was a very vibrant, wonderful, mm. wonderful, creative mixed race community, got thrown out of uh, the centre of Cape Town and moved out into shanty towns on the edge, where still many of those people uh, live in quite scruffy conditions, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, the lack of um, government support for real, real deep regeneration is still evident to this day. Unfortunately, the, the the change from the apartheid government to what is now more democratic has not led to uh, solving the very many fundamental problems that South Africa had for generations. Um, you know, you can't get over these things very easily within one generation or two generations. Mm. Even the, the marks still go very deep. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm Irish, so I mm. understand what that is like. Mm. How 
Ireland is currently celebrating its centenary of being a republic, mm-hmm. which I think when you tell people in practical terms here in the UK, they're very surprised to hear that mm-hmm. because they always feel like Ireland is a, it's always been its own place, mm-hmm. but technically it's only been a republic for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, and there is still so much stuff that people are dealing with, um, generational trauma of stuff that has gone on and it's never really been addressed. Yeah. So I understand that, mm-hmm. but you moved to the UK. Yes. Was it your, your parents decided well, but, to uproot the family and no, move to the UK? It was, it was even more complicated than that, actually. Okay. Um, my, my father's sister had married an English sailor and uh, she was uh, living in Portsmouth in a caravan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she knew no one uh, apart from him and his family, but, but his family were up in Sunderland. He was a kind of a, from that area. But then he went to sea. In those days, the sailors used to go to sea for like a year mm. at a time and they disappeared. And, and she was um, pregnant while he was away. Um, something went very, very badly wrong with the pregnancy. Um, and they messed up the operation to solve that problem so that it ended up she could have no more children. Mm. And uh, she went into a depression. I didn't know about this at the time. I was just, yeah. I was just a kid. But she was my godmother. And my grandmother decided that if uh, she took me to be with my auntie, Mm -hmm. that would help her recovery, which I think it did. Mm -hmm. But we were living in this little caravan in Portsmouth, very tiny place, the Mm -hmm. three of us. Um, And What um, what year was this? This would... I arrived in Britain late 1954. I think it was December 1954 we arrived. And... I know, was it November or December. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, we, we arrived there, and um, while we were there, the the um, the apartheid regime were clamping down quite he- a lot more heavily than I think I, as a kid, would have realised. Mm. And my uh, uh, my family, my father and mother, were writing to my grandmother saying that things were getting quite bad. They uh, decided to homeschool my brother because they they didn't feel comfortable putting him in the education system because. Uh, it would have compromised them in, uh, and they, the, the government were calling in my father because he was a teacher. Um, he was a head teacher for the mixed race community in a junior school, and they were calling him in to say that they were watching him because he was teaching subversion to the kids, and, wow. and they were they were threatening that they were going to split up the family if mm. if he was taken into prison mm-hmm. because he was doing this kind of thing. So. Um, he got. He didn't really quite know what to do. I think part of him very much wanted to stay and fight politically, mm-hmm. but the threat to the family and um, how what might happen to the children was, uh, you know, a big factor. And because we were in Britain, he just said, "Stay there, stay there, mm-hmm. and we'll sort something out." So we we never went back because the original idea, me and my grandmother, was we'd, we'd just be in Britain for a few months or mm-hmm. six months a year or something, then we'd go back again. But he said, "No, stay." And eventually they managed to get out. Um, they had to buy a return ticket for the family because they weren't allowed to emigrate. Yeah. But fortunately, uh, of course, in those days, South Africa was a member of the Commonwealth. And, yeah. in, and in those days, the uh, immigration from the Commonwealth was quite easy to mm-hmm. into Britain. It was only in the 60s that it became much more difficult. Yeah. Um, so uh, apart from getting a return ticket from South Africa, they're, they're pretending they were just on a visit. Yeah. Um, the, the, the process went reasonably well, except they were incredibly poor. They, they'd spent all their money getting here. Mm. And, um, and so we lived in, in quite dire poverty once they arrived. And that was in East London? Yeah. Was East? yeah, yeah. yeah. There 
was a South African community around Ilford Way, um, uh, uh, but I think my grandmother eventually managed to sell some of her family land um, because, again, I think the South African government were forcing mixed-race people to give up their land. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure of how they managed that, but we, we knew it was on the cards that we weren't allowed to own land anymore. Uh, this was a change because historically we had been allowed to own land. Mm-hmm. Historically, we had been allowed uh, uh, to be participating in the general voting system. They took us off that general voting system and put had a separate voting register for mixed-race people only where you couldn't effectively decide anything. Wow. Um, and so it was. It was. It was. Um, Can I ask? Were you yeah. all, like you were quite young when all this was happening? Were yeah. you aware of this, or was it? Did yes. your parents shielded from? No, you? no. My uh, my father politicised me effectively. Yeah. <laughs> told me, you know, not all the details of stuff, but really told me to be proud of who I am. Mm. Really told me to think for myself. Mm-hmm. Really told me how much politics affect everyone's daily lives, and that, yeah. that really was a big part of my political education. Yeah. For but for for my life really yeah, yeah. um not no not all the nasty details but um some of it i, did, I didn't find out until much later mm. like I, I didn't really find out how how badly that's all affected the relationship between my father and my mother right because um you know without going into too many horrible details they took different points of view on certain things and mm. and it destroyed their marriage in a sense um mm. they'd been happily married i think when they were first married but all of this stuff took a, a great deal of toll on their emo- mm. emotional relationship and uh, I don't think they ever recovered from that as a, as a marriage at any mm. rate. But they were very, very good parents to me, yeah. excellent parents, both of them. So um, speaking of being proud of yourself, mm-hmm. that leads us quite neatly onto the next topic. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, what is your coming out story? Do you mind sharing that? Or oh, absolutely, absolutely or? love sharing because it. Because yeah. also it's like, <laughs> it strikes me that trying to work out your age, but also... Did you come out before homosexuality was legalised? Yes. You did? Yes. Okay, yes. this yes. is super interesting. Can we talk about this? <laughs> um, in some ways, I was never really in. I was mm. a very, very camp kid. Mm-hmm. Extremely mm-hmm. camp as a kid. Uh, yeah. Very flouncy and uh, much more than I am when I, when I grew up. I kind of lost that along the way somehow. I mean, not not completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never completely. But... but um, I think I was quite theatrical and dramatic in my style as a kid, um, and I think my parents kind of knew that <laughs> this something was like this. Yeah. They were very accepting of it. Um, the uh, the culture in South Africa when I was a kid was to have all these carnivals, a bit like the Brazilian style mm-hmm. of carnival, mm-hmm. with people dressed up as you know drag queens dressed up in all their finery mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they were they were the, the, the muffies they used to call them that was the word they used um i think it's still there in the, in the slang um and uh, they used to parade around in a very queeny way mm-hmm. and i used to you know, you know even as a five six seven year old i used to admire this and yeah, think, yeah. You know, how wonderful you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so uh, and kind of aspire to it i guess um so it, uh, and we used to South African culture where in those days I don't know what it's like now as a kid but in those days in our area sex was not a taboo subject mm-hmm. as, okay. as kids kids openly played sex games 
with all ages you know mm. we we lived out on the street we were very much out area you know i spent most of my daytimes out in the street not presumably in the, the weather was good but of course yeah, yes, yeah. yes it's a lot better <laughs> certainly in the summer rains mm. a bit in the winter but certainly in the summer i was out on the street from morning till night you know mm. mixing with loads of other kids that i never even knew but you develop this kind of street awareness and street culture mm -hmm. and all the kids were just kind of you know, as kids do play sex games and yeah, yeah. And, and talk about stuff and and you know so it was very very open from that point of view and and part of that was was a kind of same sex stuff playing around going on mm -hmm. very openly without too much prejudice you mm -hmm. know that i'm sure there was some but it, it wasn't something that affected me in that way mm. um so in that way i don't think i was i was um, sort of closeted i was just being naturally who i was at that yeah. time and i did have uh, as a kid you know you hook up with girls and you you play boyfriend girlfriend with girls but i also played boyfriend boyfriend with mm -hmm. boys and i'm talking about even when i came to britain mm. at the age of eight nine ten I was doing this kind of thing at school. It was very light-hearted. I wouldn't say yeah. it was sexual. It was yeah. more romantic and silly, yeah. you know. But but it, it laid the seeds anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but there must have been a cultural difference when you came here because that, yes. to me, <clears throat> does not sound like what I imagine Britain to have been like in the early fifties. I think I pushed it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where I was, I tended to <clears throat> bring South African culture with me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and encouraged the sort of this kind of thing around me mm -hmm. um and i wasn't shy yeah so uh you know i think people felt open to like, like kids do if they feel safe in a setting yeah then then, then kids will play along with things like yeah, yeah. that you know um so i don't know how much it would have been uh in in that way considered normal british culture i suspect it wasn't but i also suspect that that you know behind the back sheds that sort of culture does go on in british schools oh absolutely um, <laughs> it's not that it doesn't exist it's yeah. just it's forced very underground yeah yeah um so did you have like a moment where you met like uh, your first love or something that kind of defined it more because i think now we're very obsessed with the coming out mm, and it's like mm. where you utter those words i am gay or i am bi mm. or i am trans or whatever mm -hmm. and it's like you're speaking a spell and the minute you speak it you're self-defined yeah whereas it sounds like we're talking about an era well before that yes, was yes, a thing yes but at the same time there must have been definitive moments in your own personal sexuality ident identity journey yeah when you were like oh this is me and i'm not like the vast majority of other people out there mm -hmm. were there moments like that um i'll tell you one defining moment because my my grandmother um uh, was still very much a christian mm. uh in church of england type christian but liberal and and quite understanding whereas my father declared himself an atheist and he, he told me to think for myself mm. so there was kind of conflict going on in the family mm. but my grandmother encouraged me when we were in britain to kind of still attach myself to the church mm -hmm. and uh we found uh, you know she put me through confirmation classes when i was 11 12 that 13 that sort of age and um it was that point when the the vicar we had a very nice priest actually he was really understanding he'd been a priest in the army and he was very broad-minded he wasn't mm. one of these dogmatic people um and through the confirmation class he was giving sex education sessions mm. and i guess he saw what kind of person i was because one time he took me aside and just had a private chat with me and he said did i have thoughts about um 
boys and um, masturbation and things like this. And we had a kind of confidential chat, not in any way nasty. He mm. was very, very kind, mm. very supportive. And I hadn't actually thought consciously about that stuff. Mm. I just accepted that I was this free spirit type mm. of person. And I didn't think there was anything particularly restrictive about it. Um, but it made me uh, give pause. I didn't actually talk to him about anything. I didn't give uh, give him any answers. Mm. But inside my head, it started ticking away. Yeah. I'm, I'm perhaps there's something to work on here mm. that I'm a bit different. And actually in the church, uh, this was this would be about 1960 when I was 12 going on 13. Mm. Um, the church had a very fr uh, free thinking leaflet um, it was pale blue I remember it was pale blue with white lettering mm. um, the church and homosexuality mm. and and I took this leaflet home and it was a very understanding in those days terms mm. you know not in modern terms but it was a very understanding compassionate leaflet mm. and I read it and I thought hmm and I made the very very conscious decision to put this leaflet right on the table in the middle of our front room <laughs> where where we you know the, we had a nice posh front room and we had a, a less posh dining room at the back with, mm -hmm. which is more like a kind of kitchen area mm. so i put it in the kind of posh room where we didn't always congregate but i knew that people when they went in there that it was just my father would sit in there quietly or my mother would go to to mm. dust it so i thought this is the place to put it i put it right in the, in the middle of the room there and I thought, well, let's see how they react to this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because uh, they must know that if I put it there, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's going to church. None of the rest of the family were going yeah, to church, okay. you know. So <laughs> it must have been me who put it there. Mm -hmm. uh, and they never said a word, but they picked it up and put it on the shelf on the side, you mm -hmm. know. So I knew that they'd seen it. Yeah. One, of, one of them at least had seen it. They didn't hide it. They didn't throw it away, but they just moved it and put it to one side. Mm. And I was expecting a conversation. Conversation never uh, happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, you know, they knew. Yeah. At that point, they knew. And I started bringing friends home who were um, also quite camp, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, um, and you know, it was it was clear. Yeah. I'm sure that, that. But we never had any deep conversations about yeah. it. They just kind of accepted it. Oh, by the way, even before this, when I was about nine or ten, my father seeing me as being quite um, effeminate and dramatic had said to me, oh, you're growing up to be a muffy. But he just said it as an observation. He never mm. said, oh, this is disgusting. So yeah. even even before this, he'd, yeah. he'd seen what kind of boy I was. Were there ever mm. any times when it seems like you were fine with it, your mm. family were fine with it, but it was still illegal at this point? Was there any yeah. time when like the reality of that came crashing into your old world uh i mostly in the sense of needing to be careful i think right um so you were mm. even though you were cool with it mm. you were aware that this is perhaps not a society that's cool with it mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you were taking steps to mm -hmm. care for yourself yeah. in that circumstance yeah i i was um you know, in those days, the fact this I'm talking about the early '60s mm -hmm. now. The the, the 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 tabloids in those days, like the News of the World and that 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 kind of thing, would talk about people leading a double life because you were forced to lead a double life. You yeah. you could not be that open about who you were because yeah. there were dire dire consequences. Yeah. Um. And as a child, I mean, I I started kind of going 
to see what I could do to pick up many when I was like 13 or 14 because mm-hmm. this kind of conversation I had with the vicar kind of confirmed who I, who I was for me really yeah. um, I'm sure he didn't expect that as an outcome <laughs> but that's where it went mm-hmm. and so I started realizing I had an attraction to, 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 to guys and um, I didn't know how to go about doing anything about it I wasn't particularly focused on boys of my own age Mm. I was actually chasing older men who were sort of late teenage, early 20s. And they were terrified. I could tell they were terrified, you know, because the legal consequences of this would... Yeah, it was disastrous for anybody. Yeah, so it was all done in secret. I started kind of just hanging around public toilets and things like that. And, mm. um, nothing much ever happened, to be honest. Yeah, not until I was about seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was much younger, it, it was too scary. Yeah, but when by the time I was seventeen, some people did start okay, you know, and <laughs> and that would have only. It wouldn't have been long after that homosexuality was decriminalized. Um, what? Yeah, sixty-seven. It was decriminalized, yeah. and I, as I, I said, I'd been kind of on this uh, fringe of this for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was hanging around um, some of the East London pubs, which were kind of controlled by criminal gangsters like the Cray Brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know anything about criminal gangsters, but these the the, the pubs in East London that that had a kind of homosexual life to them mm-hmm. were under the protection racket of, of gangs which I didn't know at the time you know but yeah. uh, but it was all part of that what they call the criminal underworld you mm-hmm. know yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the shadow life of people yeah. <laughs> people who live in the shadow anyway um, I, I, and I also as a, as a teenager around about 16, 17, 18 I was, I was going into Soho to try and find out what was happening there mm. and um it didn't particularly attract me, although the bohemian side of things did attract me. Mm. When I did actually meet actual other homosexual people, because that was the the polite term that was used then, um, I didn't find them at all attractive. Most of them were quite damaged people. Yeah. Um, and um, they, they weren't nice to know in general. Yeah. So I, I kind of withdrew from that quite a lot because mm. I could see it wasn't really what I wanted. And it made me doubt myself in a way Um, and it wasn't really until I went to college when I was like 19 or 20 that I started to mix with people that were my own age who were also going through the same thing as myself and then I started to come out to those friends and they started to come out to me and we started to trade Mm -hmm. our experiences more but that was it must have been quite a moment though when it was finally decriminalised Yes, and I, I remember my friend Malcolm, who was much more out than me, because um, I was still kind of being a bit wary about all this. It was in 1967, I was uh, 19 going on 20 in 1967. And so I was still, not even when it was decriminalised, I wasn't, because you had to be 21. So, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, although the act was passed, I was yeah, still not, n- yeah. not, not in the framework for that. Yeah. But Malcolm, who was like just over 21 I think um, um, celebrating in the streets going we're legal we're legal we're legal <laughs> dancing around in a very camp way <laughs> and, uh, and I, I didn't join in because I wasn't legal and, <laughs> and, and I was thinking oh I don't know how to cope with this 
um, and I did have some issues around. I mean, it was a difficult time because I wasn't really sure how to deal with the world's reaction to me. By mm -hmm. that time, I was actually feeling a lot more difficult about things than mm. I had when I was younger mm. uh, because you're approaching adulthood and the world changes around you, you know. Mm. So there's lots of other stuff to cope with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, um, so that was a, it was a tricky time around that, era, that, that period. Uh, around 67, 68, 69. But other things were going on which were quite liberating. Society like was getting into free love and permissive societies mm. and, and all this sort of hippie stuff. And mm. so I became a hippie and, and joined that kind of culture because it was much more free. And I found an acceptance there in, the, in that area of life, yeah. which I didn't find in the mainstream and actually drove me very f firmly into a countercultural frame of mind, which stayed with me all my life yeah. to actually say, I don't have to accept society's norm, not just in terms of sexuality, but in terms of property ownership, in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, capitalism and in all those kinds of terms, I, I could see that I wasn't accepting of any of that shit yeah. and that I would, that my fate lay with, with the people who are rebels, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you get involved in, like, queer activism, for want of a better word? Yeah, like, in, um, in 1970, some uh, two guys came back from uh, America where, where, you know, after the the Stonewall riots of 69, mm. things kind of moved on a notch. Although America it was still illegal out there, the activism was stronger out there. Mm. And they came back from America... Uh, in uh, the summer of, I think of the autumn maybe, of, of 1970. And they started up the Gay Liberation Front in the London School of Economics, first of all. Mm. That was used as their venue. I didn't get involved straight away because by this time, I uh, in the autumn of 1970, I'd, I'd got a job in the National Health Service. And we were working really long hours and really it was mental health work, uh, mm. psychiatric support work. And it was quite stressful. It was quite um, demanding, mm. you know. And so I didn't have the time, frankly, to get involved in gay liberation, but it was good to know it was going on. And I started kind of just hooking on to the edges of it in, in 1971, really. And I started having more out there relationships with boys. Mm. Um, because in, the, in that setting, in the psychiatric hospital, there were many others who were comfortable with their sexuality, who were happy to experiment. And um, that's what I did. And I was finding, I was, I was starting to live a very out gay life from that point on. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And gay liberation really inspired me to actually take part in that in a way that the previously closeted homosexual scene never inspired me at mm. all. You know, it, it filled me with a degree of horror yeah. because of the way that people were. Yeah. And when when we when I was active in, in Gay Liberation Front, I saw that the, the people from that generation were really not accepting of our way of being. In fact, they were fighting us. And this is an interesting dichotomy, which mm. which is, goes on to this day. Very interesting. Um, that people who are kind of want to be assimilated into, in quotes, normal society, yes. really, really oppose people who are kind of more out there yeah. because it threatens their the fabric of their identity. Yeah. Um, and they say, oh, just shut up and be quiet and let's just be accepted and everything will be all right, you know? Mm. And that was never a stance that I took. This, and that's <laughs> interesting because I was quite curious to know when you said mm. the difference between America and the UK where it was still illegal in America but the activism was stronger mm. and then that did make me think but if it had been decriminalised here already what was the attitude to like uh, so it was the Gay Liberation Front was it, yeah the Gay Liberation Front uh, uh, took a very different attitude they brought this kind of streets 
attitude mm. from America. Before that, in this country, I wasn't aware of anything like that going on in, mm. the, in the gay world or the homosexual world. It was still homosexual rather than gay before Gay, gay Liberation Front mm. brought that word into common use. Um, and the campaigns for law reform were very polite very middle and indeed upper class mm. they didn't touch the working class at all mm. these were kind of very discreet polite campaigns by nice gentlemen with mm. nice clothes yeah. and nice manners because yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of people like Brian Epstein and stuff like that like yeah, the, yeah, you know the yeah. kind of acceptable yeah who always wore very smart suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And were obviously... But, but Brian know. Epstein wasn't out until after he died. People really? Didn't, people didn't know he was gay until after he yeah. died, really. And even yeah. someone like myself, you know, who yeah. followed pop music avidly, yeah. that that, yeah. that, well, that really wasn't clear. Yeah. We, we used to hear lots of rumours about all sorts of pop stars. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that, that this is... The, the gay underworld that mm. loves a bit of rumour and a bit of drama yeah. so Sean Connery dropped into a pub you know <laughs> a gay pub to, to, yeah. to I'm sure that Sean Connery is, is is pretty much straight but at the same time the fact that he's seen in a in a, in a gay environment yeah, people yeah. started calling him Siobhan Connery <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you still uh, get that today as well yeah. people are like also it's kind of like wanting to claim people for our own yeah yeah like, oh, one of us one of us <laughs> it's like no they can still yeah. be allies yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh where were we um we were in the 1970s with gay liberation yes yeah and and that that was a big education for me to hang out with people who were making a completely different understanding of what it was to be gay and a mm. fresh one mm. it was fresh for all of us mm -hmm. you know we, we could see the, the whiteboard is clean we have to write on it what mm. we want to write on it you know yeah, yeah, and yeah. and we can uh, it was this is liberation i always tell people this liberation was as important in that as gay Mm. This was part of the feminist liberation, part of black power liberation. Mm. The liberation movement as such was a, a movement that was intersectional. Mm -hmm. And I think people today forget about this intersectionality of the liberation movement because after the early 70s, people started going back into their silos again. Mm. You know, the feminists went back into a feminist silo, the black power movement went in more of a black power silo mm. and indeed the gay liberation front split into a gay male and a lesbian mm. um, divide and the trans people were kind of split off again from mm. that so this kind of cohesion of, of the liberation movement didn't last long mm. it sparked it all off but in sparking it all off people said actually we want to be with people that are really like us mm. in order to find out who we are mm. you know I, I think the motivation was excellent but unfortunately the consequences of that was that people divided off rather than uniting in yeah. in, in the struggle it, it divided us and i think we still feel that today because mm. it's very hard well we're living in the age of the mm. identity politics mm -hmm. and the identity mm. is crucial that's kind mm. of what everyone is judged on which box do you fit yourself in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is always the primary thing that people are asked when it comes to politics mm -hmm. but it's kind of at the um at the risk of losing a general liberation for all kind of Absolutely. ethos yeah yeah which do you feel like it's better or worse or how do you feel about that now there's a lot of work to do still, mm. still, still, still. I mean, I'm really, really glad this conversation about gender has come to the forefront, mm. uh, but I don't think it's going to resolve itself anytime soon. Yeah, I think people are really digging their heels. There's a lot of pushback against 
um, the acceptance of either trans or non-binary worlds mm. there's a lot of pushback of that going on and even within gay communities well I say even but sometimes especially within some of the gay communities that there is a pushback against that and you see uh, and I never expected to see this LGB alliance something like that I, yeah. ne I never yeah, expected yeah. to see that yeah. and I never expected friends of mine to be endorsing it uh, you know that this kind of anti-trans LGB alliance type stuff I shocked me frankly when it yeah. when it erupted yeah. I, I do think it was funded I mean I've heard some unvalidated stories that it's been funded by right-wing Christian groups I um, wonder about that myself yeah. as well because I constantly wonder about like where is the impetus coming from mm. what is the engine that is driving these mm. because there's something is because while it is while it is shocking when we meet people who are mm. who side with that the actual reality is that it's, that is still a minority. Mm -hmm, Even mm -hmm. though it's shocking to us to meet those people because mm -hmm. it seems so out with our worldview, mm -hmm. being queer anyway, mm -hmm. we have to remember that those people are still a minority. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, where does the impetus come to the funding, for a start, of mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. to make those voice to amplify amplify those minority voices mm -hmm. constantly mm -hmm. because you look at other movements and you're like oh stuff like you know certain things are getting are getting that we know are getting funded by right wing churches and very kind of totalitarian mm -hmm. religious and other organizations are funding mm -hmm. things that are very anti liberty mm -hmm. and we know that for a fact and then you look at these ones and you go well it would make sense that those ones are also getting funded because mm -hmm. The reality is, even though their ranks may be growing, most people don't really care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, most mm -hmm. people, when it comes to issues of gender, only become, for want of a better phrase, transphobic or anti or questioning of those ideals when it's kind of pushed in their face and told, this is what you have to be. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, I feel most people are generally like, mm -hmm. live and let live. What you do in your bedroom is of no consequence to me mm -hmm. how you identify your gender is of no consequence to me it is only when a shouty voice shouts at them mm -hmm. that they become defensive and mm -hmm. then they think okay well now i have to have an opinion on this mm -hmm. and my opinion on this is not your opinion mm -hmm. that's what turns people against it because i maybe i'm a bit blinkered but i just feel like in general most people don't give a shit mm -hmm. it's not actually something they mm -hmm. genuinely care that much about mm -hmm. and they're quite happy to let other people live their lives as long as they don't get you know, mm -hmm. they don't bring them down. Mm -hmm. And then when they start bringing them down, that's when they become against them. Mm -hmm. So stuff like the LGB Alliance is like, that is designed to do that. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. designed to agitate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to swell the ranks of people who then become transphobic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where is the impetus for that coming from? Because mm. I feel like they know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. And they know it. it's very similar to what happened with Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of these populist votes yeah. that don't go the way people in the media mm. think they're going to go. Mm. I think the emotional resonance is that people see their world changing. It's not necessarily about the specifics of the change. Mm. They latch on to those specifics later. Mm. But it's this kind of, um, the rug is being pulled from under me. I don't understand the world anymore. Mm. And therefore, I'm going to revert back to my silo, you know, yeah. because I'm safe in that fixed view that mm -hmm. I had. And I think that's the emotional resonance. As you say, most people don't actually care about those details. Yeah. But what they do care about is that their life feels somehow threatened. Mm. You know, there's a vague sense of threat yeah. to their existence that they don't quite understand but their their way then is to defend and protect uh, yeah 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 no that's that's very valid i completely understand mm. that as well 
and then that becomes very easy for an issue, for want of a better mm. word, like gender identity to become mm. kind of shoehorned yeah, and used yeah. as the um, yeah, yeah. the point that divides people yeah, over. Yeah. And it's very fascinating how the word woke came weaponized because originally it wasn't a, a nasty word, you know, mm. it was actually... I'm aware of these things now. I'm conscious, and mm. then it was it, it was a deliberate campaign. I've heard from other sources, which I can't quote. I'm afraid I don't know, but uh, th- there were other sources that looked into this as how to how the word woke was picked up mm. by certain uh, papers, two, oh. two specific papers, and weaponized to be a, an anti word. You know, yeah, that's like, <laughs> that, but that's but that's been because like my first recollection of something akin to that mm. would be in the early 90s hearing about the term political correctness yes which was already a pejorative yes and the reason that was because that, that was pushed to be a pejorative yeah. by a right-wing media yes, who actually yes. wasn't using yes, that way exactly. that thing of using words like woke and stuff that's been an ongoing tactic yes yes for generations yes. so it's not mm. when i hear that it's not surprising to me mm. um but somebody th- actually thought about this yeah. as a strategy yeah. and made it work mm-hmm. you know, in, within the media. Somebody is very media conscious, actually yeah. said, we're going to use the media to do this. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the thing for me, though, about what's more important than the actual, if a specific word is framed in a pejorative mm. or a, I don't know what the opposite of pejorative is. Is it a majority? <laughs> I don't really know. But a, a pejorative or a positive context. Yeah. When it comes to specifically something like woke, what I think is more damaging than the word constantly being used in a pejorative sense, because there are words that traditionally, like, for instance, the N-word, which yeah. was reclaimed yeah. by black people yeah. and in an, in an attempt to take the pejorative away from it and just be like a rec- reclamation of it. Yeah. And we, me and... A lot of people I know in my friends group use the F word in the very same way. Mm-hmm. Like, because it's about, we know that we're going to get this shouted at us in the streets. So why not just like use it lovingly to each mm-hmm. other to take away the impact mm-hmm. of it being shouted at us? Mm-hmm. Queer is another great example mm-hmm. of the word queer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what's more damaging to me than an actual word being used in a negative sense is when a word or a, a term or an ideology is used in a very, very shallow way mm-hmm. so that it's very easy for the other side to then pick up on it and go, oh, look how bad it is. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when a company will do something like, use like, quote-unquote, diversity mm-hmm. or, quote-unquote, woke, mm-hmm. but when you actually analyse what they're doing, mm-hmm. it's not diverse at all. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. really a bastardization of what those ideals Absolutely. are. Yes, that, yes. to me, is much more damaging yes, in the yes, long run yes. because what that, do, that does is it gives fuel, genuine fuel, yeah. to people who are on the other side or right-wing people or totalitarians or fascists or whatever to go, look, it doesn't work and we can prove it doesn't work because of this mm. yeah. example. But mm. the thing is, it's not used properly. It's, it's not been done properly. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, I, you can see that, that that happening all the time, that, mm. that some very clever people manipulate to, to suit their own ends uh, and to stop it being real, mm. uh, but just to have a, like, you know, with greenwashing, pinkwashing, all these kinds of things. Mm. Those strategies are, are thought through. Mm. Uh, so, 
trying to make people conscious that these strategies are happening is the tactic that we use. And in general, I think that kind of conscious awareness that, the, that these strategies are part of a pushback on, on behalf of the privileged classes, mm -hmm. that does reach the people who are activists. Mm. It doesn't always penetrate to the majority, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, activists latch onto this quite quickly because we have our own means of communication within our own circles and we can try and point it out to people. But... Um, I think the problem with some activists is that that we we're not actually that good at persuading sometimes. Yeah. You know, we we talk to each other and reinforce each other mm -hmm. very very well, mm -hmm. but persuading people are not of our opinion, mm. who are perhaps a little bit more mainstream, a little bit less aware of yeah. those things. It's quite a task. When you live within a community, the truth of what that community is seems quite self-evident mm. to you. But you have to remember that not everybody lives within that community. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it does need explaining. And there is mm. something that does annoy me mm. when so much of the rhetoric that is used, particularly on social media, it just goes so far and it's like, you need to educate yourself. Well, how do I do that? Yeah, but you're yeah. not told how to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, that must be so frustrating for the people that it's aimed yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, no, the will is there to mm -hmm. actually change and to learn. Yeah, yeah. But then it's blocked off and it's, it's not my job to educate you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, fair enough. It might yeah. be taxing and stuff, but if somebody yeah. has the will to learn to yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. Then... I think, with going back to the radical fairies, I think yeah. this is where, where we... we um, and I'm not saying we work super successfully, but our intention is to be compassionate and supportive of each other. And because we're coming from that more heart-centered space, I hope that within our community, and, and these, these issues exist within our, in Radical Fairies as well, mm. but I hope that within our community, because we claim to be heart-centered, eventually we will see that just telling people, educate yourself, is not enough. Yeah. We actually have to love people yeah. and be compassionate towards their faults yeah. and actually say, you know, because I love you, I can I can work with you on this. Yeah. Because I care about what you think and yeah. how you feel and how we react together. Yeah. We can work together on this. And I think that kind of approach eventually, I hope, will work. Um, but if people feel patronised by somebody saying, "Oh, you're you're just not aware of all these things. You're not doing your 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 homework, so to speak," mm. then they think, "Oh, you're you're too up yourself. You know, mm. what do I want to do with you? You're you're just patronising me or yeah. something like that." And so I think we who are kind of creative beings and artists and as well as activists, this is a job for us, you know, in terms of our art, in terms, of our, in terms of our creativity, to actually bridge mm -hmm. that gap, to mm -hmm. communicate to people uh, that may not have thought about these things. My own personal point mm -hmm. of view on that is that art mm -hmm. is much better at that function mm -hmm. than activism is. Absolutely. Much, much Absolutely. better. Like yeah. when you think about yeah. like... I don't know, just films I watched when I was a small child mm. they probably instilled in me mm -hmm. ideals and stuff that didn't come to me from a lecture or from a book mm -hmm. or from mm -hmm. a pamphlet. It mm -hmm. was just kind of seemed logical because it was displayed in this way that seemed very easy to understand and mm -hmm. stuff like when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, there was a lot of films about the civil rights movement from the 60s. So that became very like Mississippi burning and stuff like that and the colour purple and you know, generally not even that they're specifically about but there was a general dialogue that seemed to be going on within art and culture of mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. in a part of art and culture of that time that was addressing stuff like the civil rights yeah. movement of yeah. the 60s yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So it was like, okay, yeah. that's the thing. And one yeah. thought about, yeah, why should yeah. black people have a lesser life? That makes no sense. <laughs> like, white slaves, that's horrible. No. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of my, yeah. my take on that thing. And I think it is important for artists especially mm. artists of minorities yes. themselves to 
you know, to try and apply that to mm. their own art and obviously do it in a good way. Don't be too hectoring and, and stuff. And But it's up to us to show people who don't live in our communities, who don't live our lives, mm. that living our lives is okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually mm. okay to be living our lives. We're not a danger. Mm-hmm. We're not a threat. We're not fucking anything up for anyone else. We're just living our lives as our mm-hmm. true selves. Mm-hmm. And if more people could do that, the world would be a much better place. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think creative art activism is a wonderful tool and I've seen it used very effectively by some people, but it, it does, demands a little bit of talent. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not everyone's that good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, but to be honest, that's a baseline for everything. Yeah. Like some people are talented at activism. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone who does activism is yeah. actually talented at it. Absolutely, And yes. some people are talented at art. Yeah, Not everyone yeah. who does art is yeah. or various no, forms no, of you're media. quite right. Whatever. Yeah. Um, mm. So we left, in your own personal history, we were, I think we left around, you said you were like getting into being a hippie and mm-hmm. stuff. I'm going to jump forward about, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe not quite 20 years, but let's say now we land in the mid 80s. Yeah. Where are you at in the mid 80s? You've discovered yeah. the radical fairies, you've yeah. been an activist yeah. for quite a while, and also there's this thing going on, yeah, which yeah, like, yeah. you know, HIV for one. Yeah, just, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Um, coming back from America in 1981, I um, I got almost by accident uh, into the cooperative movement in 1981. I joined a workers' cooperative, mm. and from there, from that workers' cooperative, we were doing uh, radical books and whole foods and and catering with vegetarian catering, uh, and and creative arts as well, community arts. We were doing a whole caboodle of things all in my cooperative. Mm. <laughs> And it was great. It was absolutely the best job I ever had, and it transformed my life. Up until that point, I'd been working, before I went to America, I'd been working for state-type institutions like the health service, the education service, social services. After that point, I never did that ever again. Mm. I was working in worker cooperatives. I was working in charities or community groups, or all that kind of stuff. Did you? Um, could, I, could I just ask, did you feel mm. like the state apparatus or useless or you know because it is inadequate rather than useless okay Uh, I I won't say that they're totally useless because they do do a a portion of good but the point that they're coming from is completely inadequate and I think absolutely is never going to be adequate unfortunately Mm. in some senses unfortunately and I think this is where also we get into a bit of politics because I don't think um, the left in Britain has actually understood that I think the left in Britain tends to want to think they're state solutions uh, still. Yeah. Even even this kind of moderate new Labour left mm. still kind of thinks the state will work in partnership with some big corporations or other. Yeah, yeah. And the, the changes will come about in that way by, yeah. by big thinking from above. I don't think it will. I think it has to be coming from the grassroots. Yes. And um, and I think the, the left, if it wants to succeed, really needs to get back to the grassroots okay. to actually empower local communities, local action groups to actually make that action work for itself. And that's a slightly more anarchist approach than, yeah. the, than the left is comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. And that kind yeah. of quite neatly an- mm. answers, I feel, what I was mm. trying to get at there is mm. why would you move from, for instance, working for the NHS to help the community to a cooperative movement. Mm-hmm. And that really answers it because the NHS is a top-down organisation, yeah, yeah. whereas cooperative movement is something that can grow from the ground up. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and and it teaches people how to empower themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying cooperative uh, workers or housing cooperatives are the complete answer because they're quite demanding. Mm. And, and some people 
don't have the capacity to meet those demands for various reasons. Um, but I think there are a way that needs encouraging and certainly collective working needs encouraging. Most people do not have a direct experience of working collectively. Even within the circles that we're moving in now, mm. uh, most people are tending to find individual solutions or the very best solutions with a partner or two partners. You know, mm -hmm. that's the most that most people can cope with. If you're talking about a, a collective of sort of like 10, 11, 12 people, most people don't have any experience of that being a lasting thing. Yeah. Most of those things fall apart because they, there's no background, there's no model, there's no vision for people to latch on to how do a group of 10 or 12 people work together consistently over a long period. A big, big challenge. Yeah. And, and I think um, as human beings, we're actually capable of doing that, but because we have no society model easily to follow and no training in it, and indeed we're squashed from it, we're actually diverted from it if we try and do it. There's very few institutional models the way we can be trained in this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. The schools don't do it, the colleges don't do it, no one does it, not even artists do it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so where do we get our inspiration from? It's through... through dogged persistence of actually saying I do want to work in a larger collective setting mm. uh, and I do want to find out how to make collective decisions work uh, it's a big challenge I don't underestimate that challenge but it's difficult for people to do that and also make a living for themselves find their housing mm -hmm. uh, sort out their, their own uh, life as it were at the same time as to to, to actually practice um, group decision making skills or a lack of hierarchy working you know that kind of thing it's a big challenge for people mm. but I do think uh, where I want to work and my, my focus now um, which is why I'm here at Islington Mill mm -hmm. is to actually find out how to do that for queer artists yes find out how to steward that process for queer artists mm -hmm. uh, so that we enable each other we work on our own stuff but we also work in in conjunction with other people mm -hmm. to actually uh, make a setting that enables not just our work but a, a wider picture a wider yeah. setting for for that to continue as a, as a as a process where, where people can come in and learn how to do that in a supportive environment and I think the mill here is is an excellent place to start that yeah and this is you know why I'm here because I've been looking for somewhere to actually practice this kind of thing mm -hmm. um, there, there are some DIY spaces that I, I went to before um, where the community came together to try and practice this sort of DIY working in collectives um, but because there's no institutional support, there's no financial support, it's a real struggle. Mm. Uh, even just to find a building, mm. you know, it's yeah. a real, real struggle to find a physical space where you're safe enough to, to do this in a stable way. Mm. And, and our discussions yesterday, you know, you and I were in a group on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly where we're coming from. Mm. To say, where is there a stable, a stable, safe space where we can experiment and it's not going to be a catastrophe if we fail in our experiments. We have got to fail. Mm. We've got to learn to make mistakes in a safe way. Mm -hmm. You know, without having a space in which to make uh, mistakes in a safe way that's not going to threaten us, mm -hmm. we will never succeed. We only learn by making these kinds of mistakes and failing a bit, but being supported from our failure to learn and grow from there. And that's why I'm really excited to be at the mill because I feel that this is one opportunity that I've identified and I haven't seen it anywhere else yet. Cool. I'm not saying it doesn't happen yeah. anywhere else, yeah, yeah. but I've not found it anywhere else yet yeah, yeah. Where, where we can be free to actually say, let's try this out. Let's see how this may work. And it may not work, but we'll learn from it and make it work better. 
and uh, I think the mill gives that opportunity here, which which is wonderful. What what does that look like in practical terms mm. for the for Islington Mill? Mm. Like, could you explain to me, or like, you know, yeah, in in kind of more practical terms, mm. how what how what are the elements that would have to be happening for that to succeed or even to start? Not to succeed is to say, oh, it'll, but like like you said, it needs to, it has to be allowed to fail. Yeah. So that it's no, it's not that kind of, oh, success, success, pressure on it. Mm-hmm. But like, what are the practical things that need to be in place for that to happen, or to be allowed to happen, allowed to fail? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I. <laughs> I don't know the answers to that, really. Mm. I think we're discovering them by doing it. And this is why I'm here at the moment. We're working on the first pilot of a residency Mm -hmm. that tries to look at how we manage ourselves, um, being responsible to each other, because I'm I'm one of the residents in this this area of the mill. how we were first of all, and the three of us actually knew each other before we moved in together because we were kind of... um, self-selecting but also chosen by the mill because we knew each other and because Mm -hmm. we didn't have to work through that getting to know stuff Mm -hmm. but we weren't best friends you know we knew each other and Mm -hmm. so we kind of got over that hurdle and now we're kind of making a space together and um, this first three months is coming to an end very soon we've got some learning to do and reflect on on how this has been Mm -hmm. we've been doing what we call a, a homemaking residency to see how we can turn this this particular area into some kind of a home because it was it wasn't derelict it was a perfectly fine building mm. but it didn't feel like a home yeah and uh it was uh so we've been trying to make it more homely and more welcoming and a space where we can invite people in to also feel welcome and homely and and settled and, and mm. relaxed and that's just really the beginning it's it's, it's but it's it's been a struggle in itself you know just mm. getting to this point has yeah. been a little bit of a struggle and uh it hasn't all been successful um but now we're ready to take it perhaps to having reflected on it we're ready to think well what's the the thing that we can do to change this and make it more successful for the next tranche of people that come in mm-hmm. and that that'll increase our learning and then by the time that the fourth and uh, the, the fifth and sixth floor are ready mm-hmm. which will be the summer we'll be able to say there's a new stage now where we move what we're doing in this building here upstairs to the the fifth and sixth floor okay uh, and we'll grow from there in a different location mm-hmm. we'll still have this where we are now in this building uh in this what used to be the bnb uh we'll still have this as a as an asset to try and experiment with we don't know how that's going to happen yet none mm. of us know <laughs> we're still kind of working on that but the the elements that you asked about first of all mm-hmm. we've got two building spaces this one that we've got now and the fifth and sixth floor when that becomes available mm. we've got two physical spaces to experiment with that's essential Mm. Without that, we could go nowhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and we we don't obviously they're financial constraints, but they're not super 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 important. You know, they're not uh, like we have to pay x amount of rent to make this work. There's a certain amount of leeway in the financial constraints that that gives us. Uh, an opportunity mm-hmm. right now to work with it going forward we'll have to work out more about those financial constraints to make it sustainable for several years but at the moment we've got this opportunity where the financial constraints aren't supreme yeah. 
So that that's another thing that's in place that the finances are are reasonably okay yeah. to to support it. Um just to wrap up, do you think through your own experience is there any of the cooperatives that you've been involved with that have worked? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that they have in common or any kind of like Oh, that's a good sign. Do you know? I mean, I'm trying to think of like how, how to describe this, but like mm-hmm. the one positive, like a positive element where you were like, oh, I think that will work. Um, I'm going to answer probably not in the way you, that, that really strictly answered that question, but I'm learning a lot about consensus building. And and I think cooperatives taught me a lot about consensus building. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there, there are models now which I'm... Uh, I gather I'm not a very academic person, I regret to say. Uh, I think activists very often are at odds with academics. Mm. Um, But from the academics, I've learned there's these things called sociocracy and holacracy. And we've tried to put them into practice in radical fairy spaces as to how we build consensus. so that we we have a process of making decisions which actually makes transparent the processes in decision making like for instance in uh, the sociocratic method we use in one of our sanctuary spaces in france is to actually uh, you know like normally people will say in traditional in parliament this is the proposal we vote on it yes or no Uh, and there's no consensus in that it's a yes yes or no you know um but in this kind of process, what we would do, for example, is to say, first of all, before you even vote, do you understand this proposal? Mm. You know, what do you well, what do you understand by this proposal? Which is an even more searching question mm. because it, you, you get to say, well, maybe I don't really understand. Maybe I need to ask questions about this proposal to see what the meaning behind it is, mm. how it comes into effect. And then when everyone has agreed that they've understood what the proposal is, only then do you move to the next round. And the next round is then kind of, I understand the proposal now, but I'd like to shift it mm-hmm. because now that I understand it, I think it needs amending. Mm. And then you look at all those kind of amendments and you do the same thing with the amendments. You see if you will understand the amendments. And then finally, you agree on what amendment will go forward. Mm-hmm. And at that final stage, you uh, you have a third round which says, um, I can live with this. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, you don't have to agree with it you say, I, I, uh, one of the phrases that we use at, at our sanctuary in, in uh, France uh, is um, it's uh, safe enough to try and good enough for now. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or you can say it the other way around, good enough for now and safe enough to try. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and basically, you, you, you don't have the opportunity then to deny someone going forward with that proposal unless you feel it threatens the very fabric of the of the whole organization yeah and basically if you feel it threatens the whole fabric of the organization then you're allowed a paramount objection but unless you've got that paramount objection it's good enough for now and safe enough to try yeah okay so those are really interesting aspects of consensus building Mm. and here in the mill we're we're also trying out um what uh, uh rivka and bill call words of wonder or wow which is a process of analyzing a situation uh, in, in steps, which is a parallel process. It's not the same as that. But I think all of these processes of how we reach decisions are wonderful to examine. Mm. As I, I don't know, and we live it. 
it's yeah. not like an academic process yeah. we're living yeah, by absolutely. it you know and it's uh, theory. <laughs> yeah yeah another organization that i belong to is radical roots which uh, is is for cooperatives and collectives that are working for active social change mm. it's not that they're just cooperatives and collectives they have to be working for active social change of some kind and there they use a, a a process of consensus minus one depending on the range of of the size of the numbers of people making um you know so if it's a very large group of people mm-hmm. it'd be consensus minus two or three or four or five you know so so basically it's to allow for the fact that you you will get some people who will say no mm. no matter what because they'll be feeling in a bad mood or mm. <laughs> or yeah. just don't, they just don't want to cooperate yeah, on, yeah. on that day so you just to allow for that you allow for those people to be kind of not eliminated but just set to one side for the time being mm. but even within that process the the the, consen- the person who is not joining the consensus can can ask for can, or demand even uh, a space to explain why they're not joining the consensus yeah. uh, it's not just like you're ignored because you're not part of the consensus yeah so there's lots of different methods and this is what i'm really celebrating that i've learned in these spaces uh, and and we'll continue i hope to learn because there's so much more to explore mm. how you live this um, decision making like this is very often very drawn out and, and it's too exhausting for most people mm-hmm. so we have to think of ways to actually make it quicker mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. that's that's the major flaw with this yeah <laughs> that seems to me to be one thing that mm. they seem great but they seem very protracted yeah, yeah. and if there is a way to uh mm. but then again it's a bit like what i feel about the current kind of like parliamentary democracy that we live in it's mm. like it's outdated mm-hmm. and actually technology has moved past the point of mm-hmm. what parliamentary democracy can receive so if it gets mm. to a point where we can actually trust our phones and whatever gadgets we have to transmit mm-hmm. things electronically through the ether to each other, then it could be that democracy mm. itself becomes very... Uh, you can vote on all kinds of things. Yes, yes, indeed. And I, and I think I've I also worked with the Extinction Rebellion to some extent, mm-hmm. and their, their citizens' assembly models, I think, are wonderful, really. You know, so, something that we can use in every day. Uh, it doesn't have to be confined to Extinction Rebellion and... Uh, it can be integrated into how local councils consult with people, you know, mm-hmm. um, or even the government ultimately. But certainly things like the National Health Service, the Education Service can be very unresponsive to local needs, mm. uh, very cut off from what local people need. And yes, it's essential to their daily life. Yeah. And they, they, they act as if they know what's best for us very mm-hmm. often without really consulting us. Yeah. And I think those kind of citizens assembly models are something to explore for those those kind mm-hmm. of institutions. And just to cut uh, another thing that I didn't explain was holacracy, which uh, Mm. shortens the process, the decision-making process, because basically um, it can't can't be used in all situations. But, for example, you might have a group of artists that um, are working on uh, painting the corridor. You give them authority to make decisions within their small group about painting the corridor. Mm-hmm. So you, you delegate to them the power to do all of that. And then there's another group that will be um, working on um, digging up the courtyard. Mm-hmm. And you give them the, uh, the, you know, the, the authority to make their decisions. And that, that speeds up these decision-making process. So you, you actually farm out the decisions into yeah. smaller and smaller patches yeah. and then assign people to work on those patches mm-hmm. and, and to carry them out. And you give them authority to, within, the, within the narrow scope of what they're doing. That sounds great. Mm. That sounds very practical yeah. and practicable, yeah. like yeah. applicable. Mm. Right, brilliant. That's mm. been a great <laughs> chat. And 
I kind of feel like we'll probably will have more of these at some point in the future because <laughs> there's more. Like I did say, we jumped over a massive chunk of twenty years there as well. Yeah, which yeah. I'm really, yeah. I'm really keen to. Um, yeah. I'm really keen to record queer history. Yeah, it's yeah. One of the things that I yeah, I recognise that I didn't talk a lot about HIV and AIDS, and uh, honestly, I, 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 it's not that it, I don't. That's such a massive topic. Yeah, it's not that I don't want to talk about it, but it's it's painful. It's yeah. Really, okay. Really, fair really, enough. Really, that'll yeah. be for another time. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much, and. <laughs> I'll speak to you again. Thank you very much, Niall. You're welcome. Glad to have talked to you today. Thank you.